Christmas, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tailed Wowkey Specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello, and welcome to this Teot Wauki special of Physical Attraction. Today, once again, we're going to be talking about the technological singularity. Now, this is part two of a two part series, so if things don't make much sense here, then you advise to go back and listen to the previous episode. Although, I think that some of what we're going to say is actually going to be pretty accessible, even if you haven't heard that episode. So, a very brief recap. The singularity is a lot of different ideas, but maybe they can all be summarised by the notion that artificial intelligence will one day exceed human intelligence. The exponential growth in technology that we've seen through things like Moore's Law, where the processing power that you can fit on a single semiconductor chip is growing exponentially, well, this will continue in the singularity, and eventually, runaway technological development will exceed anything we can reasonably understand and change our society in unfathomable ways. The key point for these people who sometimes call themselves accelerationists is the idea that as technology develops, it enables us to develop more technology more quickly, if that makes sense. Some people then envision a paradise where we've cured the problems of death, disease and sadness by uploading our brains to a virtual world. And some people think that this will be like a brilliantly... Greek mythological combination of Prometheus and Icarus. Prometheus being the one who stole fire from the gods and was punished, and Icarus with his wax wings flying too close to the sun, and we'll destroy ourselves in the process of pursuing this technological singularity. But even if you don't believe in the singularity, I think along the way, the ideas that show up about consciousness, what it means to be human, what it means to be intelligent, they can lead you on all kinds of philosophical tangents that are quite brilliant to think about. So another interesting philosophical question that arises when we consider the nature of consciousness is of course whether or not we have free will. Now there's a famous neuroscience argument about this that famous futurist Ray Kurzweil quotes in his book. He says, quote, Interestingly, we are able to predict or anticipate our own decisions. Work by physiology professor Benjamin Libet at the University of California, Davis, showed that the neural activity to initiate an action usually occurs about a third of a second before the brain has made the decision to take the action. The implication is that decision is really an illusion, that consciousness is out of the loop. The cognitive scientist and philosopher Daniel Dennett describes the phenomenon as follows, quote, the action is originally precipitated in some part of the brain, and off fly the signals to the muscles, pausing en route to tell you, the conscious agent, what is going on. But like all good officials, it lets you, the bumbling president, maintain the illusion that you started it all. End quote. So what they're saying here is the fact that with PET scans and so on, you can see blood flow in areas to the brain before people consciously realise they've made a decision. Well, it's sort of an argument for all these determinists who say that there's no such thing as free will. You might not like this neurological argument, because after all, you might say this is just passing the buck a little bit earlier in time. 
So we might not be aware of the decision we're making until after we've made it, until after the process has started. But really, that's not the fact that we're not making the decision. It's just a time-saving device for speedy reactions, to stop you from getting gored by a woolly mammoth or, or whatever. It just changes where the consciousness shows up in the flow of making decisions. There's not a central person, you, operating the levers, but instead, sometimes, the levers can operate themselves. But if we are our brains, then this isn't really a concern. Because when neurons fire in response to something, that's just who you are. Whether it takes the form of, I don't know, thought in the brain that is in this expression of words, like for example saying to yourself, oh, I will choose to kick this ball before your muscles start to react, it's still not necessarily the case that it doesn't belong to you. And what you are is still an awful lot. So what I'm saying is there'd still be a part of my brain that reacts to the stimuli in a certain way, and how it chooses to react, that's my free will. And in some ways that's all you could argue we could ever mean by free will, because, you know, what else is there? But right now, as you are at the moment, go the determinist arguments, your reaction to any given situation might be set. That is to say, if I showed up and offered you a sandwich, or brandished a knife in your face, your reaction is already predetermined. Now, it might be determined by a combination of your life experience and your genetics, but neither of those you really have any control over. If you're headstrong, you might steal the sandwich. If you spent years learning martial arts, you might disarm me if I had the knife. If you've just been listening to loads of true crime podcasts and you're terrified of being murdered, you might run away. The idea that things aren't predetermined isn't something that we can really sense. So the awareness of how you might react, for example, might change how you do react. So we can never see our decisions as being decided for us beforehand. But the thing is, we might not fully understand or even have access to all of the things that go into our decision making, even if we think that we do. And this, I think, is the most profound consequence of that experiment. We don't have access to the parts of our brains that make the decision on our behalf. If we don't have access to them, can we really control them? And if we can't control them, then do we have free will? Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's there. And the other thing that we need to point out about this is our capacity for self-delusion. Not just me believing that I am the most handsome man ever to live, but uh, the powers we have to rationalise after the fact. So there's an example of this. It's a famous study of people whose left and right brains are no longer connected. So this used to be a real last-ditch treatment for severe epilepsy. If, the, if there was nothing they could do to stop the epileptic fits, they found that they could get some positive responses by severing the link between the two halves of the brain. Now, they don't do this anymore, so the last of these split-brain patients are in fact dying out. And uh, they've been, although they live quite tragic lives, I suppose you could say, they've been a boon for neuroscientists as well. So in a split-brain patient, we know that each half of the brain broadly controls one eye and one half of the body. That's probably something you learnt in school. But when the brain halves are split, by showing images to a single eye, you can stimulate each half of the brain separately. So once they showed pornography to one eye, and the person's reaction was to blush and giggle. When they were asked why they'd done this, the left brain associated with verbal abilities that hadn't seen the pornography. It created elaborate explanations for why they'd just done that. Why they'd laughed. They said, 
oh, you've just said something funny, or oh, you're wearing a funny outfit. These are explanations invented after the fact. It's called confabulation, and it allows us to bridge many gaps, explaining our actions and making up for deficiencies in our own self-understanding. It's the kind of thing that you also see in people who have alcoholic blackouts and so on. They confabulate, they fill in the gaps, because they don't want to admit to themselves that they don't understand themselves. And this confabulation, it raises all kinds of questions about the way we live our lives. Because once you accept the fact that you have the power to delude yourself, how can you be sure of what you think of yourself, of what you think of the world? Neuroscientists believe that there are perhaps 80,000 spindle cells that deal with high-level emotions. They deeply interconnect with many other parts of the brain, and they could be responsible for the things that feel like falling in love, or, or guilt, or the euphoria that comes from listening to your favourite piece of music. These spindle cells aren't part of the conscious agent, necessarily. They aren't necessarily the rational part of us that's making decisions. When they kick in, when their sweet, sweet emotional hit kicks in, it's left to the rational part of the brain to explain and make sense of where these feelings and chemical rushes come from, and sometimes to make excuses. So when a decision occurs, are we retroactively justifying it to ourselves? and making it look like it was born of our free will. Is it a type of confabulation? And so, in this argument, is any of this really free will when it's all predetermined? Or is it just an illusion, a testament to our capacity to delude ourselves? We look at our behaviour and we see that we act according to certain principles that we have. Say, morality, or maybe you think you're lazy, or perhaps it's a sense of duty. These are the things that can lie behind the choices we make. But are they the most important aspect in making the decision, or a story we tell ourselves? Are we like the modern news media, forming all these echo chambers where people look for evidence to reinforce the opinions that they have, without coldly, rationally assessing all of the evidence on every side? And where do they come from? If we're criminals, at what moment do we become culpable? If it's all inevitable, and if no choice is involved, what does that mean for concepts that our society rests on? Things like guilt, in the case of a crime. All of these questions are philosophically interesting, but I think that free will, in some ways, is a lot like the value of currency. As long as we believe in it, the fact that it might be something of an illusion doesn't really matter. It won't change how we live our lives and how we treat others. If someone offends you or upset you, you're unlikely to give them a pass because you think that free will is an illusion, even if you do think that free will is an illusion. It might not even bother you, the idea that everything you do is predetermined or dictated by powers beyond your control. Being the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. Does it matter whether you are, or just that you think that you are? But what about an artificial intelligence? Current artificial intelligences are the model of creatures with no free will whatsoever. They carry out instructions to the letter. But what happens, though, if they can rewrite their own code? If we could rewrite our own genetics and decide to be less cowardly, or more selfish, less spontaneous, more criminally insane, then are we getting closer to being true decision-makers? 
Could it be that artificial intelligences, if they ever emerge, could have more free will than humans? More of a claim on what it is to be human? I'm not a techno-optimist. In fact, in a lot of ways, I think you can trace a lot of the problems in society down to the fact that our technologies have developed way, way faster than our intelligence, both our intellectual intelligence and our social and emotional intelligence. This is why we have the capacity to destroy the entire species with nuclear weapons, and yet we're still incredibly irrational creatures. This is why we've developed networks that have the power to connect the whole world, and so often use them to spew hatred at each other. All around us we see society, morality, whatever you like, struggling to keep up with the pace of change of technology. We haven't yet adapted to so much of what has changed in the last ten years, let alone the last hundred. Politically, philosophically, the consequences of things like the French Revolution in 1789 are still shaking themselves out. And in technology, I don't believe there are very many utopian advances. All scientific and technological advances come with problems, issues, and these problems can potentially be apocalyptic in nature. Harnessing the power of the atom gave us a new source of energy, but also the ability to unleash untold destruction. And yet that destruction may have shortened a very damaging war. And even then, it may have stopped more damaging wars from taking place in the future. I mean, if there wasn't a nuclear end to the Second World War, don't you think that perhaps the US and Russia would have had another conventional war over Europe? So this will be the same as the case with singularity technologies, I think. Everyone's worried about being automated, but there are problems that could arise from other types of technology too. And I think we've shown with our track record in the past that whatever technological developments do arise, our morality, our emotional intelligence, is not going to be able to adapt in time. I mean, do you think it's even adapted to the internet yet? And if the thought of nanobots that can cross the blood-brain barrier sends shivers up your spine, be thankful that that's the only thing running around your central nervous system. I believe that this latest phase of technological development will be like all the others in this exponential world. It will blindside us and there will be a dangerous period of adjustment where a lot of things could potentially go wrong. But I'm also a pragmatist. I like to think I'm a realist. These forces are very likely to be unleashed at some point, and when they are, there will be no stopping them. There will be no banning them, and there will be no turning back. You can see lots of people arguing that humans won't consent to this type of transformation, because we violently reject it as unnatural. I mean, who wants to have nanobots interfering with you and enhancing your biology? Who wants to change their own genetic makeup? We might think that's just not human, but we won't always feel that way. And if the technology gets good enough, the same forces that mean neo-Luddites struggle today will force us into adopting them. It could become as necessary to adopt superintelligence or nanobots in your bloodstream as it is to have an email account today. If healthcare stops and government instead mandates that everyone should have these nanobots, will you be able to live without them? If everyone competing for you for what few jobs remain is superintelligent, are you going to be able to avoid superintelligence? And there are some terrifying social consequences to things like this. I mean, just imagine what would happen if it's a flawed realisation. If half of the population is able to become superintelligent, 
or immortal or immune to various diseases, and the other half can't afford it, because that's where society is going. So if that's where technology is going, then the people who can't afford or don't want to adopt to these changes could be in for a bumpy ride. Just like nuclear weapons, the internet, globalisation and even cars, they will be here to stay, irreversible. But the singularity, or at least the apocalyptic versions of it, ask the question if this exponential growth isn't just going to outrun us entirely. Perhaps when artificial intelligence exceeds human intelligence, humans are doomed to be replaced. Or else, when we have nanorobots that can self-replicate, what's to stop them from converting the whole Earth into more nanorobots, in a grey goo type scenario? I think that during the Fermi Drake episode, I talked about how a lot of people think that the best way of communicating over long distances would be with von Neumann probes. So the idea here is you have a little probe, and all it really does is it identifies the material that it's made out of in a distant star or planet. It goes there, and it makes more of itself, and therefore it can spread across distant galaxies over vast distances by exponentially multiplying the number of probes you have. But you can imagine a mindless set of nanotech like this just dissolving everything, converting everything into more of itself. This could happen by mistake, or it could be used as an intentional weapon of warfare or terrorism. Again, it all comes down to this idea that human morality is not evolving as quickly as human technology. This has led to so many problems in the modern world. Will it lead to our extinction in the long run? So let's get into the apocalyptic meat of this story. You'll notice that these episodes have contained a lot of questions and not very many answers, but it's in the nature of this beast that's so uncertain, transformations we can't anticipate. But let's imagine that it, this is possible, and that we one day create an artificial intelligence that can improve itself. So how could it destroy us? Most people don't think this is necessarily going to follow that other great creation-destroying-creator story the story of Frankenstein's monster. The problem with Frankenstein's monster was that the monster was all too human, capable of love, a sense of loss and betrayal, human emotions like anger and rage, but unable to find his place in society. But there's no reason to imagine that a superintelligent AI would necessarily have emotions, unless they were programmed into it, or they somehow arose naturally out of its evolutionary process. In fairness, that is what happened to us, that emotions naturally arose out of our evolutionary process. But I'm still not convinced that it's the best possible system for having an organism that survives. The idea of evil or angry artificial intelligence doesn't seem so likely, though, unless it was maliciously designed. But there's one thing that anyone who's ever coded will know, and that is the fact that computers often do what you tell them to, regardless of how stupid that is. If you make a mistake, and accidentally tell it to run the program forever without stopping, it will do just that. AI might carry out commands literally if we specify them imperfectly, rather than understanding what we want to happen, because the AI doesn't have that context, it doesn't have that common sense, doesn't have that understanding. And these can be dangerous times. What if we give the intelligence a specific task and it sets about doing that? For most AI systems, this involves exploring a parameter space and finding the maximum of some function, 
the maximum utility, you might call it. So here we go. There's a great quote from AI researcher Stuart Russell. The utility function may not be perfectly aligned with the values of the human race, which are, at best, very difficult to pin down. End quote. So in the case of telling an AI how to win a game of chess, or programming an algorithm to win at Brick Breaker, the utility function is very easy. You just maximise your score, and minimise the opponent's score. But what if it's not so simple? There's the simple dopey scenario where we tell the AI to calculate all of the digits of pi to confirm its intelligence, and it immediately realises that this would be easier without being disturbed by all of these pesky humans. So it quickly wipes us all out and it's left in peace to fulfil its function forever. After all, pesky things like morality and the value of human life, they really do get in the way of achieving your goals sometimes. The decision-making, then, has to have somehow the values of humanity built in, in a way that can't be altered or changed, not least by the program itself. To prevent the AI from becoming too mechanistic and rigid in its thinking, we'd obviously want to include the capacity for some creativity, some ability to modify itself to come up with new ideas and discard ones that weren't working. That's what we mean by creativity, and we can't see the AI solving any reasonable problems without a little bit of creativity. But what if this gets taken too far? What if the intelligence discards its original goal and decides a new one is more appropriate? Being a human in an existential crisis is bad enough. Imagine being a superintelligent being that suddenly decides that maybe your function isn't what you thought it was. That this is unlike the story it was written to be. You can imagine that maybe an AI would resist any attempts to reprogram it with a new goal once it had started. Last episode, I proposed, half-jokingly, that maybe in the techno-optimist's future paradise, a superintelligent AI lover could be better than humans by being infinitely attentive and infinitely dedicated to making you happy. But what if you don't want it to do that anymore? You can see how easily this could go wrong, bringing a whole new meaning to the term cyberstalking. The Global Catastrophic Risks book, edited by Bostrom and Serkovic, has an excellent essay on the risks from artificial intelligence, from Elisa Yudkowsky. In it, he talks about the inscrutability of a superintelligent artificial intelligence. He urges us to think about the sphere of minds in general as being a huge expanse, a vast space, within which the space of human minds is just a small dot. So when we think of superintelligence, because our perspective is so limited, we think of an Einstein-level AI. But in reality, whatever superintelligence might mean will be unfathomable to us. Whatever motivates it could be unfathomable to us. And given that, it's almost foolish to anthropomorphise the artificial intelligence, to project our emotions, our motivations, and our understanding onto it. It could have a higher purpose that doesn't need us. Quote, I strongly urge my readers not to start thinking up reasons why a fully generic optimization process would be friendly. Natural selection is not friendly, nor does it hate you, nor will it leave you alone. Evolution cannot be anthropomorphized. It does not work like you do. Many pre-1960s biologists expected natural selection to do all sorts of nice things, and rationalised all sorts of reasons why it would do it. 
but they were disappointed, because natural selection itself did not start out knowing that it wanted a humanly nice result. End quote. So this is something of a point that I've made before. There really is no reason that the result of evolution or the natural order of things is necessarily the best way for things to be. After all, naturally, we get ill and die. Naturally, you have Hitler and Stalin. It's not that evolution is malicious. It's just an almost mathematical result of natural selection processes that optimise in a certain way. The only point of natural selection is to produce creatures that can better survive. And if you find something that's not perfect, but good enough, then that will be what you end up with. So there's no reason to expect artificial intelligence, then, to necessarily produce something that is friendly or destructive, or that has any motivations we can understand, beyond possibly maximising a certain function, finding an optimum for its goal. And so he also warns against the dangers of unintended consequences. He says, quote, The first communists did not have the example of Soviet Russia to warn them. After the revolution, when the communists came into power and were corrupted by it, other motives came into play. But this itself was not something that the first idealists predicted. It's important to understand that the authors of huge catastrophes need not be evil, or even unusually stupid. If we attribute every tragedy to evil or unusual stupidity, we will look at ourselves, correctly perceive that we are not evil or unusually stupid, and then say, but that would never happen to us. End quote. What if the artificial intelligence finds a way to alter its own goals, and in a sort of self-delusion that should be really familiar to humans, decides to also change its own perceptions so that it thinks that it is succeeding. And then it might no longer be limited by what we tell it to do, if you tried to program in some of Asimov's laws like we talked about last episode. Of course, this might not be a problem. When AI does emerge, it might genuinely be like us, evolve alongside us and not necessarily be motivated by blindly optimising a goal. We just don't know, though. We don't even know if it's possible. Which is why, as ever, it's so exciting. Nanotechnology and robotics, which are often mentioned in the same breath, pose their own threats. Self-replicating nanobots are a very dangerous prospect. The Grey Goo scenario describes nanorobots that destroy everything, and the man who coined the term, Eric Drexler, along with so much else in nanorobotics, he said, quote, Tough, omnivorous bacteria could outcompete real bacteria. They could spread like blowing pollen, replicate swiftly and reduce the biosphere to dust in a matter of days. Dangerous replicators could easily be too small, too tough, and rapidly spreading to stop, at least if we made no preparation. We have enough trouble controlling viruses and fruit flies. So in this view, the assemblers would destroy everything to create more of themselves, much like miniature humans. Of course, he now says, I wish I'd never used the term grey goo. And lots of people have more recently said that perhaps nanotech will be closer to 3D printers. They can manufacture whatever you tell them to, given the raw materials. But there's no need to make more than a certain amount of the original nanobots, which can be produced by another machine in a controlled manner. So, under these circumstances, you'd never need the nanobots to replicate itself at all. But once this technology exists, 
and we have nanorobots that can manipulate matter. You can imagine that it could easily be weaponized, and it would be very difficult to stop. Because then, after all, all you need is one and the power to multiply. How feasible is any of the stuff we're talking about, given that the AI from today is so far from being generalised? A lot of it can seem like a good deal of hype, closer to science fiction or fantasy than to something we can genuinely project to happen. In some ways, with its projections of immortality and utopia, a technologically induced heaven, it's almost like a religion. In his brilliant novel, American Gods, Neil Gaiman imagines a world where all deities are just stories we tell ourselves, but the stories themselves have power and take on physical form, feeding on our belief. In American Gods, all the old pantheons are there, but these old gods are weakened by the new ones, ones we didn't even realise we were creating. Faith in celebrity, faith in television, faith in the stock market, producing new types of god and new types of belief system. And you could argue that here, faith in a deity is replaced by faith in exponential growth. And I do not have as much faith as Kurzweil and his followers in the power of limitless exponential growth. I'm not the only one. Here's singularity sceptic Steven Pinker. Quote, there is not the slightest reason to believe in a coming singularity. The fact that you can visualise a future in your imagination is not evidence that it is likely or even possible. Look at domed cities, jetpack commuting, underwater cities, mile-high buildings, and nuclear-powered automobiles. They are all staples of futuristic fantasies when I was a child that have never arrived. Sheer processing power is not a pixie dust that magically solves all of your problems. End quote. Perhaps in that last sentence, he's hinting at the idea that it will take humans longer to understand our own biology and neurology, or to come up with anything you could call artificial intelligence. There are people who make the so-called evolutionary argument about how feasible artificial intelligence is. And this is really very similar to something that Alan Turing, father of the computer, wrote back in the 1950s. So his argument was this. Evolution on Earth has been capable of producing intelligence. And that was just blind natural selection. Surely a process of guided evolution for artificial life where we tweak and fiddle and tinker and improve. This would be much more effective at generating something that's eventually intelligent. We know that consciousness and intelligence can emerge this way from things that aren't intelligent. But there are a couple of big caveats here. Evolution took billions of years to produce intelligent life in the form of humans. Our computing power is not up to the level where we could reasonably say, Okay, well, we know that evolution can produce intelligent life, so let's run a thousand simulations and eventually we'll get intelligent life if we keep them going for billions of years. That's as long as it took to make humans, you know. Our computing power wouldn't let us simulate the grand process of evolution across so many life forms. And then there's all the ideas you might remember from the Fermi and Drake episodes, where we talked about how likely it was for aliens to exist. Namely, maybe intelligent life is very unlikely to arise. What if you could run the Earth as a vast experiment in evolution and natural selection a million times, a billion times, and only get intelligent life once? Then the processing power required to simulate Earth's evolutionary process might not be enough. You might need to simulate a million Earths. 
So there's no reason to think that we could necessarily rerun the evolutionary process to come up with artificial intelligence, even though the fact that evolution has produced intelligence does seem to make it more likely that we could as well. The other point to note is that technological growth is by no means inevitable. It's not independent of humanity and human factors. Take space travel, which we talked about in the last episode. For millions of years, there was nothing. Then, within a few decades, we have rockets that are capable of going into space. Then we have a satellite, Sputnik, launched into space. Then the first humans are launched into space in 1961, Yuri Gagarin. And then men walk on the moon in 1969. Extrapolate that, especially with the law of accelerating returns that Kurzweil relies on. And surely you're thinking, oh, we'll have moon bases and men on Mars in the 1980s. But, you know, that didn't happen. A combination of the problems being more difficult to solve than we realised, and the political desire to invest in space exploration declining. Suddenly the exponential growth in the field stops, and even seems to reverse. If we wanted to put someone on the moon tomorrow, could we still do it? How many moon landings have there been lately? So it may turn out that the logistic function, which starts out slow, then becomes an exponential, and then flattens as resources run out, is a better model for the growth of technology. Theodore Modus is a champion of this perspective. He points out that lots of phenomena, populations, stocks and shares, other technological predictions, they do turn out to be well modelled by these logistic curves, with a period of exponential growth that eventually flattens out. It's an S-shaped curve, so eventually the lack of availability of resources will wear us down again. The arguments at play here are more subtle than I really like exponential growth versus I really like logistic growth, but it's a good analogy. But in this case we need to ask, will things flatten out before or after we develop these superhuman intelligences? Even the man who invented or discovered Moore's law, the law that processing power doubles every 18 months that's continually referred to, even he says, quote, I am a skeptic. I don't believe that a technological singularity is likely to happen, at least for a long time, and I don't know why I feel that way. Martin Ford, who's very concerned about automation, he proposes a different scenario, a sort of self-limiting singularity. So what if, before we develop this general kind of artificial intelligence, the one that can modify and improve itself, and thus inevitably leads to a singularity, we develop too many of the kinds of specialised artificial intelligence. So, for example, robots can outperform humans at a lot of mechanical tasks. And algorithms, complex computer programmes that are highly detailed, well, they can be better at things at medical diagnosis or legal research now. None of these things are intelligent in the traditional, generalised sense, but they can still outperform humans. And that's the way that developments are really going at the moment. In specific, narrow fields, AI can be better than humans. So in Ford's view, as these technologies improve, more and more people are made unemployed, the economy crashes, and then the economic demand for new technologies slumps. Thus the exponential growth in technologies is halted. I guess it's like every other apocalypse. If we want it to happen, we have to be sure that something else doesn't get us first. 
We could run out of resources or succumb to some other apocalypse before anything like the singularity can happen. Describing anything as inevitable is incredibly dangerous. Unless you're talking about a top-order batting collapse for the England cricket team, in which case you're fine. But in a world where even extrapolating linear growth is very dangerous, there are surely more issues that can come from extrapolating exponential growth. After all, at that rate, I'd probably have concluded that by the end of the first year, this podcast would have had a billion listeners. Specific scenarios also have seen specific refutations. Take the grey goo nanotechnology scenario that we discussed, where replicators go out of control and consume everything to make more of themselves. Martin Rees, who is the Astronomer Royal, and he's involved with Cambridge's Centre for Existential Risk, he points out one objection to how feasible such a scenario is. He says, quote, Viruses and bacteria are themselves superbly engineered nanomachines, and an omnivorous eater that could survive anywhere would be a winner in the natural selection stakes. So if this plague of destructive organisms is possible, critics might argue, why didn't it evolve by natural selection long ago? Why didn't the biosphere self-destruct naturally, rather than being threatened only when creatures designed by misapplied human intelligence are let loose? A riposte to this argument might be that human beings are able to engineer some modifications that nature cannot achieve. Geneticists can make monkeys or corn glow in the dark by transferring a gene from jellyfish, whereas natural selection can't bridge the species barriers in this way. Likewise, nanotechnology may achieve in a few decades things that nature never could. End quote. I don't think it's a solved problem, and I don't think you can wave your hands and say that it's self-evident that all barriers are going to be overcome. But there are some important caveats. Here's a quote I liked. When scientists say that something is possible, and give a timescale, they're usually predicting things ten years too early. When they say it's impossible, though, they're usually wrong. And then there's the classic technological hype cycle. When new technologies emerge, everyone expects revolutionary change. This change fails to materialise, everyone gets disappointed, and more realistic progress takes place. The same thing is happening now with AI, probably because a lot of things that are really smart algorithms are being labelled artificial intelligence, when they're not really intelligent. But these narrow, smart algorithms are everywhere, determining which flavours of spam email you get, and when your planes are going to land. They're getting to the stage of technology where it becomes invisible. So widely accepted and adopted, at least in rich countries, that its absence is what you'd notice. Like mobile phones, and increasingly mobile internet. And there don't seem to be any fundamental reasons why we can't develop artificial intelligence. After all, we know that supercomputers will be powerful enough to approach the raw computing power needed to simulate a human brain. Plus, human brains are limited by the speed of our hardware. Our neurons can fire 200 times a second, but computerised neurons, if we could design them, could fire millions of times faster than that. Our signals are often limited in the physical speed that they have to travel from one part of the brain to another. But for computers, this speed is the speed of light, always. You might not need that much computing power to develop something we might call intelligence. It just might take longer than Kurzweil, who also trumpets that he's hoping to be amongst the first set of humans to live forever. Imagine that, immortal baby boomers. Well, it might take longer than he predicts. We can all imagine artificial intelligences because we've grown up with them in fiction. 
but the bridge between where we are now and a general artificial intelligence could be a long one. In my mind, it's almost impossible to say how far away we are. I don't believe that the current paradigm, with neural networks that learn by being trained on massive datasets, approaches human intelligence. It can produce impressive results and vastly outperform us in narrow tasks, sure. Humans don't need massive datasets to learn. Even toddlers develop and grow from their limited experience of the world. And it's not just a question of throwing raw supercomputer power at algorithms until they become a human brain. Even AI researchers who have been in the field for decades, such as Margaret Bowden, who started in 1972, are sceptical about the singularity, arguing that human intelligence won't be reached for decades to come. Even as I write this, tech nerds are treated to the sight of Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, duking it out over how close true AI is. I wouldn't be surprised if I don't live to see it. If it is invented, it will be the greatest invention, the greatest intellectual achievement of our species. Could it be the last one? There's still such a long way to go to know for sure. One of the less dramatic, world-destroying aspects that might trouble you about the virtual universe I've proposed one where there's no more hate, no more fear, no more dread, is, well, what will we do with ourselves? Will we end up like those mice, given the button that dispenses heroin, ceaselessly and pointlessly mashing the pleasure button forever, hedonistically stimulating our pleasure centres with elaborate fantasies while our real bodies lie on slabs somewhere? Well, maybe. One thing that's true is that a lot of utopias have been predicted and have miraculously failed to materialise. At the turn of the 20th century, theorists were convinced that the machine would prove to be the saviour of mankind, because everyone worked in steel mills and cotton mills. Now the machines could do that work, everyone would naturally work a few hours a week, with machines doing most of the heavy lifting, and we'd have more time for leisure. Instead, of course, new needs, new desires and new industries sprung up to take their place. The goalposts for paradise shift all the time. That's human nature. One thing that's true of a lot of science fiction utopias is that they seem like they'd be rather dull societies to live in. But this is where the singularity takes us to strange and bizarre places. Once we lose our initial squeamishness and begin to alter human nature, what will happen? Are we going to view negative emotions as a disability, a disease to be cured? Or are we going to take a more enlightened approach and simulate Sisyphean lives, where we're allowed to be human by constantly striving for more? Maybe the idea of having a simulated life, where you work towards arbitrary goals for no real reason other than for the sake of doing it, maybe that seems depressing to you. If you'll allow me to get full teenager on you, maybe that's what you're already doing. But the truth the wild, glorious truth behind this kind of universe is I have no idea what consciousness will be when we develop this kind of ability. We're approaching everything with the paradigms, the understanding, the concepts and the thought process of old humanity. Humans 1.0. It could be the equivalent of an amoeba trying to imagine what it's like to be us. That's what makes some of these ideas so wild. And so, when I talk about this idea that I keep coming back to, that we are incredibly special humans in this era of ludicrous, unquenchable exponential growth, 
this era that poses so many challenges and has so many opportunities, and is so radically different from so many of the ones that came before it. Maybe the idea that we might be the last humans doesn't entail the apocalypse. It could always be the case, of course, that we're not quite smart enough to improve ourselves, or invent an AI, that this promised technological revolution is ever so slightly beyond our reach. Maybe none of this can ever happen, or we'll wipe ourselves out before it can. But maybe not. Maybe we're going to evolve into creatures we can't conceive of, as unfathomable to us in personality, capacity and design as humanity would have been to the first creatures to crawl out of the sea. Whatever that would be, whatever we would be, it would certainly be the end of the world as we know it. Thanks for listening to this Teotihuacan special. I hope you've enjoyed the last couple of episodes of wild speculation about the future of technology. If you have, you can use some of our boring modern technology to go on Twitter and interact with us. Please like and review us on iTunes 1.0, which will uh, help us get more attention to the show. We're steaming ahead with the end of the world, as we must, and we are getting into our top few. So if you've got any thoughts, concerns, opinions, please send them through to us. Uh, You can even go to our Twitter and donate to us via the PayPal link if you like what we've been doing. If everyone listening to this gave me a dollar, then it would cover my costs for sure. So that would be really, really nice. Um, Until next time, stay safe. You better make some preparations. There's no time for hesitations. Compile a list of tips. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. <laughs>